From the home studios of the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT, this is Teach Lab, a podcast about the art and craft of teaching. I'm Justin Reich. This week, we have our first ever audience requested episode. We got a letter from Gretchen Hummin of the Johnny Appleseed Elementary School in Lemonster, Massachusetts, who told us, I teach all subjects in fourth grade, and I'm really at a loss for how best to teach math remotely to young children. I taught math this spring, and normally I think that this is a strength of mine, but I don't think I did it well remotely. Frankly, I feel like I was more of a coach than a teacher. I'm just writing a request that you return to Michael Pershawn for a follow-up interview and find out how it went for him in that fourth grade classroom. I'm looking for guidance from every corner. So we got right back in touch with Michael and said, Michael, will you come back and talk with us again about what you've learned teaching online this past spring in your online summer camp? And Michael Prashan from New York City is back with us. Michael, welcome back to Teach Lab. Thank you. I am excited to be here. So we spoke something. It was the middle of March. It was your school was one of the very first schools to shut down. Um, an exercise that we really like to do with the learners in our online courses is I used to think, but now I think. Um, let's see if we can try to remember what were the sort of assumptions or predictions that we had in the middle of March as the shutdown was just starting about what good online math teaching remotely might look like, and then what actually happened and what did you learn? So to start with, what, what, were, what were your thoughts going into that? You know, it's, it's not easy to get back into the mindset of March. The, what I think one thing we I think we talked about was how um, you know remote learning done really well would look really different from anything like a classroom learning. It would look radically different. You might want to post like really simple activities that students could work on. It's going to involve a lot of homeschooling from the parents end, especially with younger kids, and uh, uh, it would really look kind of like drastically different from school learning. You'd, it'd be more like you set goals and you give students time to do that. Uh, give parents and families uh, a chance to work with students on those goals that are clearly articulated. And it would look not like live teaching in a classroom does, but it would look more like, you know, the classic grade models of, of homeschooling or remote learning. That's what that's and, what all the research on virtual schools as they exist in the United States says. Very few efforts at synchronous teaching, you know, teach remote uh, virtual school instructors pre-pandemic report like six hours of synchronous classroom teaching a, a week. And then the rest of the time is spent individually coaching students. So that was an assumption. Um, and what what actually happened? Well, the thing is, is that that is, I think, ideal. You know, I, I still believe that sounds great. That is not the kind of teaching that any school, uh, I think, was really able to pull off in the kind of emergency virtual learning uh, that we put together for 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 this past spring and uh, and for me in the summer and that we're going to be doing again in a large part for the fall, right? Because parents and families, first of all, didn't sign up for this, right? So the whole idea that that families will be there kind of supporting students through these things that you post. That's an assumption that, you know, you can make, <laughs> but that is not uh, an assumption that is shared with all the parties involved. It's not what parents have planned for. 
that's exactly right. And uh, and therefore, I, you know, schools are making synchronous learning a part of this. And I, I, I don't, not, not many schools, or I shouldn't say not many, many schools were not doing any synchronous stuff, even for young kids at the start of the pandemic in March. My school from the start was doing a lot of synchronous stuff. Uh, I think it's a good idea to do some synchronous stuff for this emergency pandemic learning. I think more schools are planning on doing that for the fall, though that has challenges, you know, also because of access to the internet at various times and access to devices. But anyway, schools are doing synchronous stuff. And so that's a whole different set of challenges than the kind of the, 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 the ideal model might propose. And what, what were some of the challenges that you encountered? What were the things that you, for, particularly for your fourth graders, um, which I think is just a tough age, you know, I, I, I guess fourth grade is where some young people are starting to develop more independence, more sort of executive function, more ability to follow multi-step directions, to attend to a calendar, those kinds of things. But what did, what did the teaching and learning with your fourth graders end up looking like? Well, at, at first it was very rough because you know from the from the get-go uh, I remember the first lesson I taught these fourth graders um, I had kind of please don't get mad at me I won't. school if my no not you I'm not worried okay. about you but my if anybody from my I, I did kind of borrow a document camera without permission from my school from your school building which which I'm saying now because I'm gonna return it yeah but uh, so I brought it home and I set it up and uh, I started kind of like trying to treat it like my blackboard and immediately it was like oh wait that part's fine uh i can't see anything that any of them are doing and so that became kind of like for for me in the spring the basic pedagogical challenge was you know well, how do i see you're teaching through doing. a one-way mirror you right. can sort of see what you're doing and you can't really see and you, you know maybe if you make the kids put their camera on you can see their faces but their faces are not that informative and what's really informative is whatever it is that they're scribbling in front of them as they're trying to do math. Exactly. And I tried really hard in those first weeks. My first thought, was, I, you know, it became clear right away that this was the biggest pedagogical challenge for me, that if I could figure this out, things would go better. And if I can't figure it out, things wouldn't go better. So that was where I really focused my energy in the first couple weeks of this, uh, of this teaching exercise. I mean that and like everything else, but I, my teaching energies <laughs> yeah. were focused this way. And uh, I tried, uh, I think the first thing I tried was, uh, my school was using Google Classroom, uh, finding ways for kids to post pictures of their work, hold up their pictures to the camera and post pictures. Great idea. Not fun. Uh, what wasn't fun about it? It's not, have you ever tried it? It's not easy to hold up something to a webcam. Like this is a birthday card, like holding up to the webcam. You can't, if you put it in front of the camera, it blocks your eyes. Yeah. So you can't see if it's in focus. So, and, and so you get kind of like these real sketchy things. And also it's kind of laborious. It's like, there's ways to cut down the number of clicks and the, and I, you know, I'm a good elementary school teacher. Uh, or I like to not, not, not. English, let's just take but, that as a, let's take that as a factual <laughs> statement as an assumption of this conversation. Michael Bershon, a good elementary school teacher. I didn't mean that I'm an excellent elementary school teacher what i meant was i am definitely an elementary school teacher yeah uh in that there was a routine so i'm like oh i have to explicitly teach it yeah so i said about trying to i said a whole lesson the goal of this lesson is just to teach you how to take 
pictures of your work with the webcam in the simplest way possible. Yep. And uh, it was still, it's still hard. It's, it's, it's hard and the pictures don't come out well and it's, it takes time. So like if you're in a lesson, you're teaching something, I can get kids to post stuff, but it's not going to be in time for me to use it. Uh, you know, yeah, you can't have that kind of formative feedback loop like you're, you know, our norm is you kind of wandering through the classroom, poking your head over kids' shoulders, looking at the work on the table in front of them and being like, oh, four of you are making the same kind of mistake. I'm going to pull those four into a little group where I'm going to go back to the board and have a conversation about this interesting misinterpretation that people have or things like that. Whereas what's happening is, you know, like that process, which, you know, might have taken you three minutes or something like that in the classroom now gets stretched out over 15 minutes and kids forgot what they were working on by the time you've gotten the data together to say something interesting back to them. Absolutely. And um, I was just talking now about synchronous lessons, but the asynchronous lessons were a mess also because uh, I'd post assignments. Uh, my school kind of said like, don't worry, don't stress. You can just post a worksheet. It doesn't need to be like a whole thing. Yeah. It doesn't need to be a whole production. That sounds great. So I post a worksheet and I say, you know, post a picture of, of your work. And you know, as a fourth grade teacher and also a third grade teacher, I know that just because I didn't get something doesn't mean the kids didn't do it. They might not have submitted it because that's a whole other thing to remember to do. Yeah. <laughs> so I found myself in the first couple of weeks in utter doubt as to whether students were doing any of the work, learning anything uh, or and, and, and whether they were submitting stuff. I was getting some work, which means that I had another problem, which is that I know that some kids are learning stuff. Do I keep going? What's the pace in which I should, I need it. Right. So that's the problem. The problem was access to kids thinking. And that, that eventually pushed me to technology to, to that, that pushed me because I'm, 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 I don't like using other technology. I'm a, I'm a tech savvy person, but I think what that means to me is like, I'm super wary of because I know that it's complicated, right? I feel like because I know how to use stuff, I also know that it's not going to be easy for children. So you uh, defaulted in some ways to what you thought was sort of the simplest possible way for students to be able to share their thinking with you of just like, do it on paper, take a picture of it and send it to me. Um, and you set up some routines for that and just students weren't doing it. The students who were doing it, there's too much time lag between you assigning things and people getting stuff back. Um, what were the technologies that you turned to next? Or what, well, what were the ones that ended up being most successful? No, well, the one, I mean, I, I don't like recommending particular tools. It's mm -hmm. against my instincts because it's such a, tools can be, I mean, they're all private companies. They all, you like a tool, it becomes, expensive really quickly they take it away they change something there's data concerns there's privacy concerns i don't like recommending specific tools but i will say i used a tool called class kick i learned about it from an uh another math teacher uh who, who wrote about it a little bit online i was very skeptical i thought it was just a google docs thing and then that eventually became very useful and i'll, I'll just to be clear because it's not about the particular tool uh but let me say why it's useful. Yeah. Tell us about the routine that you are able to do with this technology. And then presumably there's a bunch of different technologies that would let people do this routine. Or there should be like right now, somebody should mock it together. Like right now. Yeah. So first of all, um, like I was saying, and like any third or fourth grade or teacher of young, young children would know, or middle school children or high school children or anybody, people are not always reliable about turning stuff in 
anybody, by the way, who taught with Google Classroom this year has dealt with the, the, the conundrum of Google Classroom telling you that like one out of 20 people has done your assignment, but that's not true. It's just nobody's clicked the button that Google makes you click that's like, this has been actually submitted. Meaning submission is an extra step. Yep. Technology, the first thing that I would say for any good classroom technology for this kind of distance learning is no submission. As soon as you write it or produce it, it's done. It's submitted. You don't need to click or submit or send an email, nothing. Just as soon as you produce it, it's done. Which, by the way, does push you by definition into doing work on the computer setting. Yeah. So that's a trade-off, right? You can't, if you're writing on paper, there's no way to automatically send that. Yeah. But but if we're, if we're asking students to do their thinking on a computer, there are tools that could allow you to automatically send that to the teacher or share that with the teacher. And that's really useful. So that's thing number one. Thing number two is no accounts needed. I don't want my students to have to juggle a password. There are tools that I considered using with my third and fourth graders in the spring. And then I couldn't because the idea of getting them all signed up with a password that they would remember was impossible. And we heard would, that over and over from parents this spring that their seven different teachers would each come up with two tools um, that each had a different login associated with them. And it just became confusing and impossible to manage. No good, right? So there's a way to avoid that, which is some tools, there's just a link that you click and it sends you there. And that's an environment where the student works. And when they close the link, it's done. That's great. So those are the two big things. The third thing is uh, the environment needs to be like an okay one for students to work in. If students can't actually do stuff in the setting, it's going to be useless. You can see it maybe, but it won't be good. So at the minimum for math, that means that you need to be able to write stuff and you need to be able to draw stuff. Uh, you need to be able to write things like numbers or variables. Uh, and you need to be able to draw stuff for symbols that aren't. And your students are drawing stuff on a tablet with their finger or drawing stuff on a computer with their mouse or a trackpad. Yeah, or either one, right? Yeah. You know, obviously it's not as good to draw with anyone who's drawn with a mouse knows that it's not as good to draw with the mouse. I can say, uh, in a moment, I, I mean, I guess I'll say this here in case we forget later. The one thing I did learn to do was have a lot of connect the dots sort of activities that would be very easy to draw with a mouse. Less like freeform drawing, more right. which of which of these lines should you connect to make the right thing appear? Right. Connect the equal expressions so mm -hmm. that you just need to get from one to the other rather than like solve, you know, 37 times six, which is like, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I ended up doing more stuff that was that was simpler to produce with 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 really, you know, sloppy mouse writing. So that that's thing three that the environment needs to be an okay one for doing the work that the kid's doing. And uh, and the fourth thing, maybe this is the last one, because uh, I'm riffing here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is uh, but these are these are concrete things. Let's review one through three. Um, yeah. No submission. The submission has to be instantaneous as you're doing it. No logins or passwords. There just needs to be a link that you click on. Um, and then you have to be able to do math in a basic way in the environment. Those are the three things. And then what's number four? Well, the fourth one is that you want to be able to see what students are doing as they're doing it. It's kind of connected to the submission thing. But you can imagine technology that's not easy to observe what students are doing as they're doing it, even though it ends up 
you know, being yep. observable later. Yep. What's what's important is being able to see, uh, especially if kids are doing stuff uh, when you're not present, asynchronous learning, just assignments that kids are doing, it, it can be very useful to observe what students are doing as they log in and do it. Where are they getting stuck? Where are they uh, not sure what to do? Are they logging in at all? So being able to see what students are doing as they're doing it, live uh, observation is, I think, a fourth crucial aspect of any tech. So, so Classic does those four things. There's various things that it doesn't do well. Uh, there are some bonus things that it does well for some of these synchronous classes, like students can sign into the same page together and collaborate. Mm. So that's nice. Um, but but and that became really useful for my summer teaching, which was kind of more explicitly collaborative in some ways. Uh, like the teaching and learning was. Yeah. I feel like that's a value of the camp in a way that it, it was not for the spring stuff. In any event, so that's 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 what pushed me to a tech tool uh, and away from my existing ideas. Webcam infrastructure. Um, right. So what would you what would a typical daily or weekly routine look like for your fourth graders? Yeah. So what we landed on. I also teach third graders also, which in which is that's a those were really different in my school. Hmm. So um, the third graders, I was. I, I once a week I was allowed to kind of like allowed is the wrong word. Once a week we had uh, a synchronous meeting, and then there were three assignments posted the rest of the week. Uh, so the first meeting of the week was kind of like an introduction, but you can't really follow up on what students are doing uh, with a live session. The fourth grade was two live sessions a week and two assignments a week, and they were split up in a way that was kind of balanced so that you yep. can respond to students. So um, in both my third and my fourth grade classes, you know, there'd be a live session and I would uh, then every other day post a link to a class kick assignment on, uh, with some exceptions, like I do other stuff here and there, but, but most days a class kick assignment uh, that I created that they would work on uh, as an assignment. And so there'd be, um, so my, my routine was like this. First things first, post a joke at the top of the Google Classroom page. So there'd be a post on Google Classroom. First thing's a joke, the setup and not the punchline. This is goofy as anything, but uh, I needed ways to get kids excited to say stuff on Google Classroom. Yeah. Uh, especially my third graders. Uh, so just, so just low hanging fruit. Here's yeah. what I want you to, did they have to guess the punchline? They had to guess the punchline. So it'd be like, like, uh, oh, I can't remember any of the jokes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, what do you call – question. What do you call a factory that produces things that are just okay but not great? The things aren't great that they produce. They're just fine. And I'd post that question. And then I'd say, hey, everybody, uh, uh, here's, you know, what we're doing today, class kick assignment. Uh, I loved your work yesterday that I saw. Congrats to such and such person for solving this problem. Loved your work. Uh, and then I'd say, okay, uh, if you have any questions, do this. And then in the comments, students would start guessing the punchline. And I would be there chatting with them. And especially for my third graders that did not have kind of the same uh, uh, executive functioning stuff to be able to, to, to come in Google Classroom and check 
all the time. That was really useful to me. It was something to get a conversation going beyond class hours. Uh, and that was very useful to me. Uh, I could also imagine, oh, I should tell you the punchline. Yes. A satisfactory. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Very good. I That's hard like that. for a third or fourth grade. I know, I know, I know. I, there's better ones. I just like that one. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and so I'd have that kind of conversation. My fourth graders, by the way, had no problem chatting on Google Classroom. I would wake up or if I'd go outside and play with my kids for an hour in, in the rain or whatever, because it was like raining all the time in March, I'd come back like soaking wet to open my computer. They're like 50 discussion comments from my fourth graders just yelling at each other uh, in nice ways. But whatever. All right. So you post a joke, people start replying to the punchline, you've gotten them engaged. What comes next? So let me talk about third grade first, because these are two really different models. The third grade thing I just needed, I, kids were not signing in reliably. This was not right. I was coming in as a math teacher. Their main show is with somebody else. It was challenging to get kids to sign in, to remember to come back to class. So I was trying to make our live synchronous meetings as fun and as enjoyable as possible uh, while still being mathematical. So I was prioritizing those things for something like we play a game together or do a puzzle together uh, that would introduce whatever assignment, that would also kind of connect to whatever assignment I was doing later that week. But I was okay with it being not the closest connection of all time. Uh, so it'd be kind of like if we have a, and this was the way it was, like a half hour time slot to, to have a meeting with these kids. It would be like play a game, talk about what they did last week and give some kind of whole class feedback and then give them a little example uh, that would help them start the next day's assignment, which was gonna be a classic assignment where I take like four or five different math problems and give them some variety. Mm -hmm. So I could have just done like worksheets every day, but I was really worried about them because kids were dropping like flies. It was not easy to keep kids coming back to these things. Yeah. So what I ended up doing was, uh, you know, if our, if on Monday we had this kind of meeting together, this live time, I'd get them really excited. I'd be like, here's the kind of stuff that we're going to do. This puzzle will reappear later this week. And I know that some people last week requested some multiplication. We're going to do that too this week. You're going to see that on the slides this week in class kick. And uh, I know that a lot of people like these these other type of puzzles and that's gonna be there too. So I was giving a variety of stuff, figuring that there's something that somebody will like in in every day. And if, uh, and I can't tell which kids need help with what if they don't come back. Yeah. So, so that's really what I was thinking. Uh, and that's really different by the way than the virtual, just to put that point, like, that is not what research or whatever suggests is the best model for virtual learning, you know, done ideally, right? Like, how so? Could, how is it, how is it different? Well, because, well, maybe that's because I think it, it it takes attendance. It doesn't treat attendance as something you have to fight for, or and participation is something you really need to like. Uh, battle for right to to, to get no, people I, I mean, coming I think, back I, th I think that is a consistent issue in virtual schooling um particularly since you know i mean the two classes of people that sign up for pre-pandemic virtual schooling are kids who are 
really being poorly served by the existing school system. Um, you know, they've, they're, they're, they're failing out or dropping out or leaving or being, you know, or, or being really poorly served by their existing traditional district public school. And so their parents enroll them in online school because maybe this will work better. And then they're kind of like athletes, um, gymnasts, musicians, um, kids who have some alternative life, uh, people who want to do homeschooling, um, like a, like a, a group of people that are sort of affirmatively opting into the system because it fits their lifestyle better. Um, and then folks who are really struggling with the existing school system and trying to use this as a, as an alternative. Um, I mean, you know what, I mean, one thing that's clear from pre pandemic research is that these virtual school teachers spend a lot of time following up with kids who are disappearing or not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. Yeah. I've talked to, to some people like my friend, Courtney, she, she tells me that she's, you know, she's, she devotes time every week to emailing her students mm -hmm. to just follow up like, Hey, you didn't get this assignment from you. Yeah. But I, but I still think they've signed up yeah. to do this thing. Yeah. Nobody wanted to be in emergency remote, remote school closures. So I, students who would otherwise be incredibly reliable were just disappearing disappearing and so you're trying to come up with this sort of panoply of thing, like whatever whatever it is that kids seem to be hooking in on yeah. you're trying to give them more than that and you're trying to give everybody a little bit of these of, of things so that every week they'll see some stuff that they're interested in now yeah. how are you in the synchronous sessions are they working on class kick or are they working on class kick between things like how do you take advantage of the fact that you can sort of see their work in real time okay well just to say this here i I wasn't doing as much of that with the third graders, but fourth graders I was, because fourth graders, I'm seeing them twice a week live. And so that was more of, that gives you more options for, for, for really focusing on a specific skill. Like I taught them, uh, decimals was a unit that I kind of successfully, to my, in my view, uh, taught the fourth graders, mm -hmm. like how to add decimals together and uh, how to turn decimals into fractions. So yeah, so what I would do there is I would, uh, yeah, I would I would start class with an example and then I would send them there and then I'd put them in breakout rooms. These kids know each other. They like each other. I would ask them, who do you want to work with today? Again, I wanted to be feel good because kids were dropping out. So I didn't want to put them with the kids that they always fight with. You know, yeah. I might do that in the classroom. I might say it's not a good idea uh, for all sorts of reasons for kids to pick their group. That's not a great move. For an elementary school teacher always yeah to tell kids like who do you want to work with today first of all it causes fights so it can make kids feel bad and third you know it'd be raucous uh, and unruly a lot of the times but uh but i was totally willing to do that in in these zoom sessions because i want kids to feel good so i was putting kids i was asking who do you want to work with today put you in a breakout room give you the assignment i'd say if you want somebody can share their screen and you can all talk together about what goes there. Uh, if you want, you can all work by yourselves. You just need to decide as a group. And then I'll come around to each group. And, uh, and okay, so was there goofing off? Yeah. Uh, I was able to tell which groups were having the most trouble getting started because I was able to monitor it uh, on the back end of this class kick thing. And then I'd zip in there and I'd tell, you know, the, that's that's standard teachery stuff. Hey, how's it going? You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So what are, has anybody read the problem yet? What? Yeah, what do you think? You know, it's the same dumb stuff I do all every day, every year. So yeah. that was that's not hard. That's not hard in the that's not pandemic hard. Yeah. So so that was good. That made me feel it was less efficient 
there's there's less kind of social we're all doing this together so it's easier for goofing off to happen but people would fall into groups that were productive for the most part and i would monitor them and i would help them and it was slow but it was normal-ish it was it was within the realm of normal teaching and that was good that that's that's what it allowed me to do it felt so more normal putting kids in small groups with people they want to work with having and having them work in some environment where it's really easy for you even if you're not in the breakout room to see what they're working on so you can jump in and help them out that that sounds like that's the sort of core of the synchronous routine right i i think it feels like a lot of uh research on group work mentions accountability for the group and i think that having being able to monitor them gives you like real accountability it's not like you just showed up and like how's it going guys it's going great yeah. oh, okay <laughs> You know, it, you can really kind of see uh, how things are going and, and say, well, you know, nobody started. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm in this room because I'm looking at your slides and yeah. you've done zero four of them. So let's talk right. about how you might continue next. Um, was that was that routine successful enough that that's the basis of what you're going to do this fall? Well, the, the one thing I'll add is that it, you, the group work aspect is not as crucial as I maybe thought at first, you can just as easily assign everybody in a whole group context some task. And if you're able to monitor it, that's fine. Kids work on things on their own with help in classrooms too. So so my mix is, you know, a mix of whole group uh, and uh, and group work work. And and I should say also not entirely in class kick. The other big useful thing that I figured out pretty early on was that the chat is Zoom really chat. Zoom chat is really useful. I would set it to privately only go to B. So I wouldn't really allow for discussion. You know, discussion. That's not what just, I was using it for. You would just ask a question and then everybody would post individually their responses to you. Right. Or... So maybe the fuller synchronous class picture looks like this. Hey everybody, welcome to class. Brief blah blah blah. Okay, here's a problem from yesterday. Can you type your answer into the chat? Great job, Melissa. Fantastic, Justin. Five isn't right. I wouldn't say like, Jimmy, five isn't right. I'd say five isn't right. If you said five, you might want to revise that. Stuff like that. And then I would say, okay, today I'm teaching you this. Here's an example of this. I would ask everybody in the chat, can you explain why I did this and this and this? because I want kids to explain uh, conceptually uh, particular details from whatever we're learning, because that's just good teaching in general. And so I'm using the chat to do that. It's set privately, so I'm telling kids, you, I really want everybody to respond. Your job is to say, I don't know, or IDK, or whatever, if yeah. you don't know, because I want participation very frequently, very frequently. And uh, some days I would spend the whole time in that mode, in the kind of your participating by chatting mode. Some days I would say very quickly, okay, time to start a class kick assignment. Um, Desmos, by the way, is another useful tool in the mix for teaching math. It turned out not to be as useful to me in the spring as class kick uh, because of, you know, we were talking before about the four things. Uh, it has a lot of those four things, but it's not as easy an environment for kids to do some math and others. Uh, for example, you can't write text as easily to annotate a, the slide. Uh, so, uh, and uh, kids can't collaborate 
uh, on the same screen. So it's it's another useful tool though. And if I didn't have ClassKick, I would use Desmos. Uh, and particularly for graphing, for middle school math, it's ideal. For elementary math, it was less ideal. But anyway, point is I would do some of that stuff also in the secretive sessions. And then, right. So, and, and variety is important. Consistency is important, but some variety is important. So in these synchronous meetings, I basically have three things I can do. I can go back and forth on the chat. I can ask everybody to work on you know, uh, click a link, go to some other math environment like ClassKick or Desmos using a tech tool uh, on their own. Um, or I can put kids in breakout rooms and they can collaborate on something. And so those three modes are what I kind of was juggling. Uh, it's possible to think of those in sequence. Like at the start of the unit, I'm more likely to keep everybody in the whole group setting doing the chat stuff. Uh, then, you know, I would be more likely next to ask them to try some stuff on their own. Uh, and then maybe to collaborate on a longer assignment. Uh, it's possible to think of this as a sequence. Good. Uh, so you've, yeah. you've sort of adapted kind of, you know, whole class instruction, whole you know, recitation and small group work, um, in, independent work into these, in, into what fits into Zoom. And then sort of like you would in the classroom, you're sort of alternating between these three things, both based on what the content dictates, based on the mood of folks, um, they, you know, and some of it just kind of alternating things so that there's variety in the in the daily schedule, but not so much variety that people are confused as to what they're doing next. Right. Variety and like, here's the link that you're going to click today, not like here's a new. By the way, there's lots of good puzzles and games that that kids do like doing and they're if they're built online already it's like an app or a website those are a good variety also so that was i guess another thing in the mix also just to keep things variety is important it's got to be you lose kids if it's not if it's younger kids i think especially if it's not it's if it's not fun yeah you know and i think losing kids in this online setting is different than you know there's always a risk of people sort of zoning out um, but at least they're in the room right. and at least you sort of have a chance a few minutes later of recovering them back in you know once they sort of walk away from the computer turn the webcam off log out um it's a lot right, harder right to... you've eliminated because because motivation can be you know individual motivation and it can also be social motivation school is usually an amazing social environment for motivation even yeah. though people have mixed experiences when they look back on their school years, fundamentally, you know, it's a place where lots of people are doing the same thing, uh, your your peers and friends. And it's it's pretty effective, all things considered, at helping encourage people to, to do things that are good for learning. Uh, you wipe that out entirely in one fell swoop. Yeah, I have this vision of when a third grader sort of gets bored doing what they're doing and they lift their head up in a classroom and look around. And you see a bunch of kids either sitting at tables doing their work or hunched over worksheets. They sort of go, well, all right, everybody's kind of doing this thing. I guess I'll do that thing. Whereas at home, if you pick your head up from your iPad or your Chromebook and look around, you're like, oh, I got a bunch of toys in the corner. And like, yeah. there's a refrigerator full of snacks over there. And like, oh, my mom's downstairs. I wonder what she's doing. There's just so many more things to cut. You know, there's, 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 there's so many more things to draw you away. And there's nothing that communicates to the cue like, oh, everyone else is doing this thing that I'm supposed to be doing. I ought to keep doing well, it. Well, right. So one thing I did do uh, as part of my online teaching to try to create some of that kind of social is, is that, you know, this is, again, this is, I'd really leaned into uh, narrating when students are doing things well. 
uh, just to try to create that kind of like everybody's doing it, you know, great job, Charissa. Fantastic, Eva. Maria, this is wonderful. Like, you know, you're ba uh, you're basically narrating what you wish students would see when they're kind of looking around. Like in, exactly. in, the, in the model that I just gave, the kid lifts their head up and they sees a see a bunch of people working. Since you're the only one that can see all that input, you're just talking about that input all the time with people. Exactly. And trying to reinforce like the normal thing to do right now is to be working on this thing right. and to be posting in the chat and to be asking me questions. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to, that, to try to reinforce those sorts of social norms. Um, so that, that'll be your plan kind of going forward in this year. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was just kind of pacing. Um, so because you, most people don't teach both third and fourth grade, but you do. And some of your third grade students will be your fourth grade students this year. I, well, this is getting in the weeds a little bit, Justin, but my assignment this year is shifted a little bit. I'm teaching third graders. My fourth grade class was replaced with a calculus class. Okay. So uh, to, to, to 12th graders, not to fourth graders. So, so I am, I'm not teaching fourth grade this year, but yeah. Okay. Let me re-ask the question. But yeah. <laughs> all right. So in terms of pacing, what's your sense for your third grade class next year? Are you thinking that you'll teach sort of the same amount and the same range of topics as you would have taught in 2017 or 2018 to third graders? Or how are you thinking about adjusting the curriculum or adjusting your pacing throughout the year? Does anybody know? Is, I mean, this this seems like the like the big uncertainty, and I, I I'm entering this year trying to be as open minded <laughs> about what I may see as possible. We don't know. We really don't know. I'm in New York City. Our case count has stayed pretty low lately. I have no idea what's going to happen. Schools are opening in New York City. Some schools are opening. It's not clear what the picture is going to be. It's and, and and third and third graders, some of my third graders will be going to school. I I will be teaching them remote because of the weird plan, which every school's got a weird plan. So, but yeah. the point is, is that I don't know. And so, I approach this as not trying to figure out what they know, but trying to figure out how to teach under this kind of intense uncertainty about what they've already learned, what the pace of learning is going to look like. So how does that look different? I, you know, that I don't know. I'm going to take a guess and start and then try But you'll to start with the same unit that you would start in any other year. And are, you're, you're going to go into it if, if you had had a two-week unit on whatever the first thing in third grade math is. It's still going to be a two-week unit on whatever the first thing in third grade math is. And you see where you are at the end of those two weeks. Yeah, Unless, you know, after the first week, it's a disaster. You know what I mean? Yeah. This My feeling about this year, as long as we're doing this remote thing, is we got to just power through it. We have to, I, I don't know if there's going to be a way to like really nail the pacing decision. And I don't know how much better things would be if we could nail it. Because fundamentally, there's less that we're, there's less teaching time, there's less learning time, it's less ideal conditions for learning and teaching. I, I don't know it how much students are gonna be able to learn this year. And I doubt that anybody does. So if I wanted to devote resources and energy to like trying to really plan for eventualities, I'd be focusing on whenever things go back to normal. I wouldn't be trying to, 
I, I would be trying to make this year as best as possible in the moment. Uh, and then trying to think like what systems and structures can be in place to try to get back on track after. Cause I, I don't know. Cause the thing that's missing is our ability to assess how it's going. Yeah. We have right? no idea. It's not, it's not a separate thing. You know, you can't assess how this thing is going for the same reason that it's going poorly. Cause, because it's hard to know what kids are actually learning and doing. So, so I'm just, I'm trying to be flexible. I'm going to try my, my plan for the spring was eventually, you know, keep things engaging, keep kids coming back. That's my fundamental goal. Try to teach as much as I can. And that's what I'm going to try to do in the fall also. And then when things get back to normal, that's when I think that we should, you know, I'm a classroom teacher. I, I am not an administrator, but that's when I think we should really be putting our kind of um, emergency plans or our big plans together, our long-term plans. Where we might go back and say, okay, are there really critical things that students missed? What kind of what kind of deeper remediation plans do we want to have? How do we want to add, you know, tutoring or other kinds of things to to help folks out? Is you know, sort of mostly yeah. mostly for now, um, keep kids engaged with school to help them learn as much as they can, to help them stay connected, have a sense of normalcy, have a sense of routine, to build connections with peers and trusted adults. Um, and then, you know, to the to the extent that we feel like there's there's things that people missed in their educational experience, let's worry about that when the world feels a little bit more normal and right. Not because of like, just because you can't. I just want to like, it's, you can't know how things are going. Right. And there's not that much you can do about it right now. So, but when you get back, like they, you know, you can. We need a way. Like, okay, so it's March and everybody's back to normal because. It turns out COVID just self explodes yeah. on its own. It's, it's just going to go away. Yeah. It just, it just goes poof after a while. It expires essentially. Yeah. So uh, like bad mill. So, uh, so when everybody gets back, okay, we don't want to like give everybody a standardized test on, you know, that Tuesday, but like, how can we figure out whether we can dive back into grade level content in a classroom and how can we figure out who's going to need? Yeah tutoring because tutoring i think is a very useful tool in this situation right um how are we going to figure out how everybody can graduate on time how are we going to make sure that college access is not harmed for anybody uh all that stuff i think you, you can't do yet but you can plan for that now and that's where i wish schools and administrators were devoting i mean obviously it's hard right now because they're all putting out fires with the with this kind of emergency remote learning plan. But that's that's what I really think could help. All right, so it sounds like we're talking about worked examples, how we demonstrate to students um, new ideas and new ways of doing problem solving in mathematics. I know you've recently given a talk at the Research Ed Conference. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you were sharing with folks in your presentation there? And so I gave a talk and the talk was about uh, worked example research, so example on how to teach effectively with examples, uh, and how that looks somewhat different in the physical classroom than in my online classrooms, just because the context is so different, which I think also goes to show that research needs context. To, right. you got to plug in. Research doesn't tell you how to teach. Research right. gives you principles and ideas that you then kind of connect with your... Uh you adapt to your local setting. Yeah. And, and local setting has changed a lot. 
from a room to a screen. So, uh, you know, worked example research, everybody knows that, you know, you got to give kids something to, sometimes you have to tell kids, here's how something's done. You got to give examples. But we also know that kids don't always learn from examples uh, when you share them. And one idea from research about why that is, is because uh, some students kind of spontaneously, when there's an example, they start thinking like, oh yeah, this makes sense. I can say, yeah, that has to do with this. And that's because they explain things to themselves. That's how they make sense of it. They think deeply about it, but not everybody does this, certainly not on their own. So uh, cognitive science research, one idea from cognitive science research is that, you know, you should prompt kids to do this. You should teach kids how to give explanations and you should prompt them to give explanations to themselves after showing them an example or something that you'd like them to think about. And uh, that's great. I love that. That's a rock solid principle. Here's how I do that in my physical classroom. Uh, I would use something kind of like a turn and talk. I'd say, okay, here's the example. I would look at eyeballs. I'd see where the attention is. I'd see that people are reading it. And I'd say, okay, it looks like people have been reading it. I'd say, put your thumb up if you're done reading it. People put their thumbs up and say, okay, here's some prompts. Here's what I want you to think about. Can you think about these things? Take a second or two and think about how you would answer these things. And I'd say, okay, I'd like you to turn to your partners and I'd like you to discuss them. And then I'd walk around the room and I'd listen to the discussions. And that'd give me a chance to kind of see, oh, are people able to explain these things? Are people not able to explain these things? Um, who needs, looks like they need some help? Who has a good idea that I could kind of like pull out and ask them to share with everybody? And I'd do that and then I'd, we'd have a brief discussion. And I'd say, okay, here's another problem. I'd like you to try it on your own. Try to use the same ideas from the example we just studied for this new problem over here. It's a chance to make a generalization, to connect two different problems with the same strategy. Great, that, that works pretty well in my classroom. If you wanna know more about how to make that work, I'm writing a book about it. Uh, okay, which of those things can you do through a screen? Well, if I post an example, I can't see anybody's eyeballs, so that's gone. If I post prompts, I can't have kids talk to each other, so that's gone. Uh, I can read what people type into the chat though, so I have kind of learned to adapt this kind of routine just so that's happening through a chat box. And there may be some advantages of doing it in a chat box in the sense that now you have a record of what people said. Um, there are some, you know, comparisons that you can make. You, you probably can't ask everyone to verbalize um, in a classroom, you couldn't say, hey, you know, all 17 of you, tell me what you think at the same time um, and have them speak because they'd all talk over each other and wouldn't make any sense. But you can do that if they're typing into a chat box. Right. It's, it's really different. And you can you can pull out like you can say like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, Erica. Copy, paste. Here's Erica's great idea. Let me read it to you, everybody. Erica said, um, Another thing I would do that I couldn't do in a physical classroom as easily is, is uh, you know, if you ask students, okay, what do you think the answer to this question is? Uh, sometimes there's kind of like social convergence, like uh, someone will say five, seven, seven, seven. Oh, it's seven. Yeah, it's definitely seven. Uh, what I could do is if I ask people to answer a question and there's two things, I would very frequently say, okay, everybody, here's the two answers that people have given, five, seven. In the chat, which of these do you think is correct and why? That kind of thing. To, to push deeping into uh, thinking a different way. So I, I, I the talk is, uh, and the book also is kind of about this too. I think it's a, a point that's 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 important, which is, uh, you know, teachers are very used to hearing people 
bring out research and just kind of like slam it over your head with it. Like, yeah, research says you should use this, so, so you should do this. And that's not really how research can interact with teaching. Research gives you principles, ideas, theories, whatever, but then it requires teachers to kind of like make it work. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's really true. And I think pandemic is kind of a an opportune time to notice that. Right. Because the research, you know, research is most useful in cognate circumstances, most useful when the place where people did the research is like the circumstance in which you're teaching. And now there's very little research that we've ever done, which is in a circumstance that's like emergency remote teaching. And so all you can do is try to take those first principles and see, okay, which of them work in this specific context? Yeah, of course. But like, don't need to tell you this, but but lots of research is already kind of not in the exact cognate circumstances of the classroom anyway, right? right. It you was know, done in the lab. With it's done with undergrads, and, you know, yeah. uh, it's done with a different subject. So there's this adaptation that we're doing now, we always have to do. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Well, good. Well, Michael, it's enormously helpful to get your perspective. Um, and I hope that uh, we answered some of Gretchen's questions from the Johnny Appleseed Elementary School in Lemonster, Mass. Um, not, not far from where I'm uh, sitting right here. Um, and I think the routines that you described will be really helpful. I think the, the ways that you've described your principles for selecting some technology. And I think, you know, boiling things down to the fundamental thing that you were missing was the ability to have students make their thinking visible so that you could be responsive to their thinking and your teaching. And I think you've given us some great suggestions for how teachers can think about solving that in their own classroom context with whatever technologies their schools and districts make available or they select for their own classroom. So Michael Prashan from New York City, I hope uh, you have a very safe uh, fall and I'll look forward to keeping chatting with you and seeing how your remote teaching continues. Always a pleasure. That was Michael Pershawn, a math teacher in New York City at one of the first schools to close due to COVID and hopefully one of the schools that'll be opening safely this fall. You can read his blogging at notepad.michaelpershawn.com and in the show notes, we have links to our first conversation with Michael and his recent talk at the Research Ed Conference. I'm Justin Reich. Thanks for listening to Teach Lab. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Teach Lab to get future episodes on how educators from all walks of life are tackling distance learning during COVID-19. I've got a new book coming out this fall about education, technology, and schools. It's called Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education, coming from Harvard University Press. You can learn more at failuretodisrupt.com, and the book will be released on September 15th, so you can pre-order now. You can also join our free online book club starting September 21st at failuretodisrupt.com slash virtual book club. This episode of Teach Lab was produced by Amy Corrigan and Garrett Beasley. It was recorded and sound mixed by Garrett Beasley. Stay safe until next time.